Please take your Bibles and open it up to 1 Corinthians. And this morning we have come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we have just read together. I want to begin this morning by reading for you one section of it that we have just read. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So this week, as I was um, preparing for the sermon, I was talking with our song leader and having a wonderful conversation with her, and she told me she really hated this passage. And if you think about it, I think you could hate it too. What is going on with this? Is this passage setting Christians up simply to be a people who are to be walked over, to be taken advantage of, to be exploited? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? If someone cheats you, don't take them to court, just let them cheat you. How does that sit with you? This passage is meant to be shocking. It's meant to grab your attention. It's meant to make you sit up and think because Paul has gone from expel the immoral brother in 1 Corinthians 5, something that probably most of us could get behind, to why not su rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? How are we doing with that? How does that feel to you? Is that a principle that you would live by in this culture where we're so consumed with personal rights, not being taken advantage of, not being trampled upon, not being exploited. How are we doing with that? And if the word of God is our authority, if we are to live by every word that has proceeded from the mouth of the Lord, how are we going to live by this? So I uh, want to thank Irene. She's been passing out a uh, handout. You'll see that what we have here in 1 Corinthians 5 to 6, and we are going to see this repeated over and over, as I've said, as we go through the book of Corinthians. You can see on one side, uh, that's just what you've already gotten before when we went through 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 through 4. And you can see that Paul begins with a problem. And then... He seems to go on this tangent where he talks about something else, but what it does is it establishes the biblical principle that will then come back in order to help us resolve the problem that we first saw. And so uh, back in chapters one through four, we saw that the problem was divisiveness in the church. But then there was a biblical principle, which was to see and magnify the power of God and that the power of God and the gospel be the foundation for our faith and not simply the eloquence or the power of a particular speaker. 
And so then Paul came back to the divisiveness and showed then how we then have the mind of Christ. We see this coming up again here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because we uh, looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 at this problem of sexual immorality in the church. And that was in chapter 5, but if you just look ahead in chapter 6, you can see that when you get to verse 12, we've come back to the problem of sexual immorality. And what that tells you is that Paul never left that topic. He was on it the whole way through. And so he gives a situation, but now there's this principle, and it's meant to reorient us so that we can now understand what God has intended for us through this. And in this particular instance, when Paul gives this principle, he switches subjects from expelling a brother who has been committing a horrible form of sexual immorality within the church to a matter of lawsuits between brothers. And not only does it seem to be just a very sharp disjunction from what we've been talking before, switching subjects from sexual immorality to lawsuits, it almost seems like he is contradicting himself, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 5, you kind of see this principle of holding people accountable. If they're doing something wrong, they should be called out. They should be brought to repentance. But now, and we can see that this is still within the church because he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This is within the church. This is still within the church. And so how can we go from holding people accountable in chapter five to letting them defraud you in chapter six. And so this is what we have to resolve this morning. And why is it? And would we actually do this? Suppose there was a grievance within this church. Instead of going to the law courts, perhaps we should have that person present their case before the church and the saints would judge the case. Why would we do that? Is it that Christians have better fact-finding abilities than the civil courts? They have a lot of powers we don't, right? They can depose people, they can hold people accountable, and if they uh, give false testimony, there can be punishment for that in the courts. Why would Paul do something like this? And so as we explore this question, let's also ask for God's wisdom, because I will say that there is a transformation that God is urging on each one of us and that only by the power of God will our hearts and minds be transformed by his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the words of your servant, Paul. We thank you for the wisdom that you gave him and that in his life and in his body, he magnified your son, Jesus Christ. And each one of these principles that he brings before us today, he lived in his own life. And what that tells us is that we also can live according to each one of these principles. And yet, Lord, our hearts and minds are so bound up in the way that we are. And so we ask this morning that you would free us by your gospel, by the power purchased for us by Jesus Christ at the cross, that our minds might be freed not to live in the way of this world, but the transformed life 
that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. And so in looking at what Paul is talking about here in chapter 6, there is an easy-to-see connection back to chapter 5. So if you look at chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says this to conclude the earlier argument. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so he does conclude chapter 5 with this idea of judging. But there's some changes, and let's notice what those changes are. Before, we were talking about judging these things and judging them um, judging people in order to put them outside the church. And so here there is a uh, case where, uh, again, back in chapter 5, where someone who was acting immorally and the reputation and the witness and the salvation of the other person was at stake. And so the church was to judge this person in order to help them see their error. And this was to go to the extent of putting them outside the church. But now we are judging those, or actually not judging those within the church who are committing a sinful act. And so there's one change, right? We're going from uh, a situation of holding someone accountable and setting them outside the church to not holding someone accountable and not giving them any kind of consequences for the sin that they've engaged in. Another change is that the type of thing we're talking about is different, right? And so we've gone from a case of sexual immorality to a property dispute. And so what is happening here? Why is it that we can connect this case of a man who is sleeping with his father's wife to a lawsuit? What is the principle that will bring these two things together? Well, we do have that principle right at the end of chapter 5. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. What are we striving to accomplish in both of these instances? What is the church after in expelling the immoral brother in chapter 5 and not pursuing the case against the person who has defrauded you in chapter 6? And the answer to that is holiness. Holiness. God is after the holiness of the body of Christ. God is after the sanctification of those within the church. Now, okay, how is it pursuing holiness and sanctification if we're not pursuing lawsuits among one another? Well, one of the things that history has shown us and that we can see in the context of our own society with all the protests that are going on is that laws are not always just. And in particular, laws 
generally benefit those who have power in society and they disadvantage those who have no power. Now, in our society, it seems very unstable, right? Because in one sense, power is in the hands of the people and whichever segment of the population uh, is able to obtain the most power or have the most influence generally will be advantaged by our laws. And then the rest of the society starts to protest against laws that they don't like. But in the case that we see here in Corinthians, what is going on in terms of this idea of not pursuing those who might have defrauded you and not pursuing every advantage you can get from the law? I want to, oops, I forgot to bring it up. Sorry about that. Uh, I've used this illustration before, but I want to uh, read for you a proverb from ancient China. And it's about the philosopher Yangtze, who lived many hundreds of years ago and served a particular prince. And uh, in particular, he um, might find some traction with us because uh, his name is Yangtze, but he called himself Yin, and in Pittsburgh, we call ourselves uh, Yinzers, right? So, <laughs> okay, and so this is a story from China where a prince, Prince Qing, had commissioned Yangtze to be the magistrate of Tango. And after three years, his name, bad name as administrator had become well known throughout the kingdom. Prince Qing was not pleased, and he summoned Yangtze in order to dismiss him. Yangtze apologized, saying, Yin is well aware of his own fault, but if you could but permit him to administer Tango for another three years, he guarantees that he could produce results that would be known all over the country. Chris Ching did not have the heart to refuse, so he sent Yangtze back to be magistrate of Tango. Three years later, to be sure, Yangtze's good name as an administrator had spread throughout the kingdom. Prince Ching, greatly pleased, summoned him again in order to reward him. Yangtze declined the reward with thanks. The prince asked him why, and he stated in reply, formerly when Yin managed Tango, he built roads and hastened public works, thus incurring the displeasure of the wicked citizens. He cited the thrifty and the filial, thereby encouraging the displeasure of the indolent citizens. In trying cases, he did not make any allowance for the strong and the powerful thereby incurring the displeasure of the strong and powerful. When people at his right and at his left had any request, he would grant it if it was proper and refuse it if it was unlawful, thereby incurring the displeasure of those at his right and at his left. In serving the person of his superiors, he did not exceed the demands of propriety, thereby incurring the displeasure of his superiors. Thus was how it came that wicked tongues started wagging without and damaging words were planted within. And in three years, criticism had reached the ears of the prince. Now, this time, your servant took care to amend his ways. He would neglect road building and delay other public works, thereby pleasing the wicked citizens. He would overlook the thrifty and the filial and condone the thieves and the robbers, thereby pleasing the indolent citizens. In trying cases, he would make allowances for the strong and the powerful, thereby pleasing the strong and the powerful. He would grant every request from those at his right and at his left, thereby pleasing those at his right and at his left. In serving the persons of his superiors, 
he would go beyond the requirements of propriety, thereby pleasing his superiors. That was why tongues started to wag in my favor and words were planted in my behalf. And in three years, my praise has reached your ears. To my mind, Yin deserved reward formerly when he was ordered done away with, whereas today he merits dismissal and yet reward is coming to him. That is why he dares not accept. From this, Prince Ching realized that Yangzhu was an honest man, so he gave him the whole kingdom to administer, and in three years' time, great prosperity came to the kingdom of Qi. We could only wish that our public officials had this kind of wisdom. But the point that Paul is making here is, what is the purpose of pursuing the law. And in particular, you know, America for its all its faults, I'm very thankful to be living here. I mean, we do recognize we are probably living during a time of unparalleled prosperity, laws that while not completely fair, do in many respects give justice. That has not been the case through much of human history. And so, in this case, and as we also do see in our society, many times those who have the power to enforce the law do so in order to take a material advantage. And that helps us see what ties these two passages together. Because when you take sexual immorality on the one hand and worldly prosperity on the other, aren't we talking about the things that most consume our hearts and our minds and bind us to this world, can corrupt the church, can corrupt you if you are not on guard against them. Our sexuality, I mean, how willing are we to lay that down before God and to submit it to him? If there's one area that it is difficult to trust God in, it's in that area of our sexual relations, who we can enter into a relationship with. Will God bring to me the person that I want? Must I restrain myself in order to satisfy the requirements of this God? And furthermore, look at the comparison that Paul gets into with a prostitute. And so he brings these two ideas together when he talks about why not be rather be defrauded to when we come to um, chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? There is an intimacy involved in this aspect of our lives. It touches the core of our being. That, that, that's why it's so easy for people to make that jump from my sexual identity is my identity. Actually, my, I'm sorry, my sexual orientation is my identity. Now, when you think about it, that's obviously not true, right? Aren't we far more than our sexual orientations? Isn't there a whole lot more to you than just simply what you do in sex? But it is a very intimate aspect of our lives. But why this comparison then to a prostitute? Because prostitution takes what God designs not to be our identity, but a gift given to us 
for love and intimacy and turns it into a commodity. It turns it into a commodity, and now you can see that connection, right? How does Hollywood treat people? Like, Hollywood is a, a bastion, right, of, of liberal values. And so if there's any place where people's kind of stated values, what they say that they stand for, would seem to lend itself to, they're of course going to respect the rights of women. But where is it that which segment of our society is perhaps most notorious for all these scandals where men have exploited women? And you can see why that can happen because Hollywood, in terms of how they make films, how they promote things has turned sexuality into a commodity. And if sexuality is a commodity, then the people who you can get it from also have become a commodity. When God tells us that our sexuality is to be expressed within proper boundaries, the boundaries of a man and a woman united in marriage, he is not trying to be the divine spoil sport. He is not being the great fuddy-duddy. He is not being the immortal nagger but he is teaching us to learn to love, respect, and cherish one another. But the idea that immorality is simply another form of expression causes us to see seeing one another as precious brothers and sisters in Christ and instead commodities to be exploited. And so what we can see here is that God is accomplishing for us is he is freeing us from those bonds. It's not all these no, 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 but a no that leads to a greater yes. Look at what Paul says at the beginning when he says, go ahead and uh, be defrauded. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. What does freedom in Christ mean? We all like to talk about our freedom in Christ, but what is freedom in Christ? Freedom in Christ is not the liberty to go and do what the Corinthians have been doing in terms of the sexual morality that we talked about in, in, in chapter 5. It's the freedom to stop doing that and to enjoy what God has intended for us to enjoy. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. What does that tell us? The things of this world and the things that have been designed for the things of this world are temporary. They will pass away. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. There's the contrast. And so food in the stomach, temporary. The body, you think also temporary, but no. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. If the body is meant for the Lord, it has to be immortal because God is eternal. And so your bodies must then also live forever. But there is an intimacy, there's an, there is a way of living that we have to come to in order to come to that. What does it mean to be free in Christ? And I want to just 
illustrate this and conclude this morning with a, a story about a very special missionary effort. It's one that uh, perhaps has had an impact on your life. It was one that was began back in the 1800s by Hudson Taylor called the China Inland Mission. When Hudson Taylor organized the China Inland Mission, he organized it with some very unusual and controversial stipulations. The missionaries would have no guaranteed salaries. They were not to appeal for funds except to God. They would adopt Chinese dress and they would press into the interior of China. I don't know how many of you have been to the interior of China. I imagine some of you must be familiar, especially those who perhaps uh, in, have been there in, in uh, less than the recent past, but a little bit longer ago. I was there back in uh, around 19, I want to say 1995 or so. And I remember going in a little bit into the interior of China, and it was, it was an interesting experience. Uh, we had something new there, which was kind of neat, uh, made our stay much more comfortable. They had running water, but it was only on for one hour a day. And when it first came out of the faucet, it was, it was pretty yellow and it smelled really bad. China Inland Mission was begun back in 1866. If you were going to go into the interior of China, you were going to forsake a lot of the comforts that we take for granted. And you were going to forsake them at least for several years and perhaps for the rest of your life. And so if you were going to serve with the China Inland Mission, you were certainly going to have to learn to deny self. You'd had to be prepared for at least some level of suffering. But for those missionaries who went, the worst of their suffering was going to come in 1900, when the Boxer Rebellion erupted and China exploded with the resentment of these foreign powers who had come into the country. And many of you would be familiar with this history and were exploiting the Chinese people, take, taking advantage of them, uh, restricting their trade, uh, foisting opium upon the people. And so the country, Many people and many of the peasants rebelled against these foreign rulers. And the cry erupted to kill all the foreigners and this religion that had come in with them. And so um, the nation exploded into violence and the foreign powers then sent in their armies to suppress this rebellion. And because of the divided situation in China, this, these armed forces were able to very quickly suppress the rebellion and brought it to an end. In the end, around 100,000 people died, most of them the Boxer rebels. These Boxer rebels largely failed to kill the foreigners with one exception. Because the foreigners were mostly in these cities and protected by the armies, but not the missionaries. And especially those with the China mission. Excuse me. 
with their emphasis on pressing into the meat. on pressing into the interior of China with the gospel. <sighs> Sorry, folks. They lost more people than any other organization. I think we have these here for the testimonies. So when the foreign nations had restored their control, they forced upon the Chinese government an enormous indemnity, an indemnity which was more than the entire tax income for an entire year. And again, there was one exception. The China Inland Mission refused to take any recompense from the Chinese government. Hudson Taylor stated that their reason was they wanted the Chinese to see the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ. He wanted to win them, not get justice from them. Do you see the connection to our passage? What did the Corinthians want? They wanted everything that they could get entitled by the law. Now the law in China was very unjust. Those foreigners that had established their control over China, if, if you read about in the histories, when those Western nations came in, they exploited, they, they indiscriminately killed many civilians, raped many women, all in the name of justice and what they could accomplish because they had the power. But what is the transformation of the gospel? No longer are we striving to try to get everything in this world that we can because food was meant for the stomach and stomach was meant for food. All these things that those foreigners took today, long gone, they're all dead and they're all facing their eternal consequences. But the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What is worth your life? Our boys have an auntie, Irene's sister, a sister who's a missionary. And we've often told them we would love to see you guys go and serve the Lord as missionaries. And they look at that auntie and they say, no, we don't want to live like that. <laughs> Uh, because they just see, you know, like she has less than the rest of the family and her life is harder. But what is your life if there's nothing worthy to devote it to? And this is the thing that Paul is trying to help the Corinthians see here in chapters five and six. Yes, the temptations are there. What if you don't? get to have sex. Yes, the property is there and you could get it. What if you denied yourself? 
Is there something that's worthy of your sacrifice? Can you live as the Apostle Paul showed us he lived and committed himself to the gospel of Christ? What is the price of your life? Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the Corinthians. That they, in living the lives they did, in coming to repentance in the way they did, many people who, in the end, did have to endure the persecution that would come upon them, found that there was something that was worth their life. Father God, you know this church, you know this people. They are precious to you and you love them. But we are also are a church that is very much consumed with this world. Is there something that is worth our allegiance? Is there something that is worth our life? I pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to see that Jesus Christ is. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Is Daisy here? Oh, hi, Daisy. Uh, we've been having just the incredible blessing of having some of our brothers and sisters share their lives with us and how God has been working. Uh, I have myself personally been very touched by Daisy's life, and I hope all the rest of you will join with me in welcoming her as she gives us her testimony. Daisy? Thanks for having me here today. Um, I, my name is Daisy, for those who don't know me. Um, I was, can everyone hear me? Okay. <laughs> um, I was asked to share a little bit about my testimony, so I hope that you guys will bear with me uh, throughout this process. Um, when I was preparing for this talk, I was initially thinking about how should I introduce myself? Um, there's a lot of labels that I've worn over the years, and in the past I've defined my identity by them, um, such as being Chinese American or an honor student or a band nerd. These are things that I used to put my value in. Um, but here I'm today I'm here to talk about the one label that is the most important to me, and that is being a forgiven daughter in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, I'm here to share kind of the journey about how I got there. Uh, growing up, I grew up in a Chinese American Christian household. And so that means that every Sunday I would go to church, just like we're doing right here. Um, sometimes my family would read a psalm or pray before dinner. But other than that, we didn't necessarily talk about who God or Jesus was in our household. Um, Rather, it was really impressed upon me how important success was. Um, my parents came from, sacrificed a lot, don't get me wrong, to come here to the US. Um, they worked hard to pull themselves out of poverty, to be the only person in their community to be accepted into college and to, have the opportunity to come to the US, they had to work and compete and just be better than everyone. And so because of that pride and 
that pressure, I think they placed it upon me that me and my brother that since we were from the same genetics and now we had more opportunities and more resources and just everything of our basic needs taken care of, shouldn't we be better? Shouldn't we be able to do much more? Shouldn't we be able to succeed much more? It almost felt like if we didn't become the president of the United States or <laughs> um, a CEO or something like that, uh, we had failed. And so I spent a lot of my high school years and um, college years even just chasing these things, any sort of indicator of success, whether it's having a high GPA, having a high SAT score, being first chair in band or um, president of some sort of organization. Um, but the more that I chased these things, the more that I saw that they were very empty. Whenever I got a high GPA, it would always be what's the next test? What's the next subject that I have to conquer? What is the next thing that I have to achieve? Um, and so I found myself wondering, what is my worth? When I saw others doing better than me, I started to wonder, do I have any value? Um, I was wondering, why am I working so hard? The next thing is always going to be there. The next thing that I have to do is always going to be there. So why, why should I do it? Uh, so because of this in high school, I and definitely like the hit to my self-worth, I felt I fell into a little bit of uh, depression, pretty much. I started having suicidal thoughts. I didn't know who I was. And it didn't necessarily help that uh, my parents who had valued academics would ask me to go to science and Olympiad competitions on Saturdays and Sundays. And I just felt more and more disconnected from my church community because I had been valuing these things ahead of it. And so um, I went to college and in college I met all sorts of people. I think it's really exciting to meet just people from different walks of life, people with different values. And I went along with whatever the world said I should do. I went to parties, I sought my self-worth since it was so low at the time in relationships that I shouldn't have been in in things that I ha shouldn't have been doing. And in the back of my mind, I always knew that what I was doing was wrong since I had been growing up in a Christian community. I knew that these things weren't things that God was pleased with, but in my mind, I thought, it's okay, or who is he, really? Where is he? And so um, through this journey that I was you know, going to parties in freshman year, I met people. I met some people that I felt really seemed to care and love the people around them, seemed to genuinely put themselves aside. I met one of them in my Cal class, the other in a band that I had decided to check out, a dance team that I had checked out. And one day walking through the quad, I saw, happened to see all three of these people in like one event 
and they were just having barbecue pretty much outside. And I was just like, who, what is that group? Like, why are all the cool people there? <laughs> why does it seem like these people are different than the other people that I've met? And so I messaged one of them and I just started asking questions. Turns out it was Cornelia InterVarsity, which was the Asian American Christian Fellowship on campus at the time. I obviously coming from a Christian background, I knew, oh, okay, like if I start, I could just kind of barge in really, like they'd be okay if I <laughs> wanted to join them. So I started going to their small groups. I started going to their large groups. I started asking questions that I've been holding back for a really long time. Things that I felt like I couldn't necessarily ask the elders at the church because they were too intimidating and older. <laughs> um, things like, if the Bible is supposed to be true, how come the different accounts of the different gospels have different details or different um, ways that they've like said the same events, you know? How come the orders are different? How come the numbers are different? How, how can I trust this to be true? I was really fortunate that the seniors were very patient with me at that time. I asked a lot of questions and uh, they did their best to answer. And slowly and surely I realized and learned who God truly was. And I realized the depth of the rebellion that I had been facing against him. So sophomore year, I went to a conference with InterVarsity. And at that conference, I remember actually specifically the sermon that um, the speaker was giving. He was talking about Rahab. And I don't know how much you guys know about Rahab, but um, she essentially was a prostitute. But because she had heard about the Lord and had such insistence upon finding his favor, God had, had accepted her into his family and ultimately into the lineage of Jesus. It was there that I recommitted to God and decided that I would live my life for him. And it, it was a few weeks afterwards that I told my church about it and eventually got baptized. Since then, God has given me a mission and a purpose a reason to keep going when things are hard. A, a flip from who I was in high school. Um, he challenges me to continuously love and care for the people around me, just as Christ did. He also has given me an unshakable identity. Um, not one of those silly labels that I've identified with in the past, but one that is truly unshakable. So if you are wrestling with some of the questions that I wrestled with, such as what your worth is or why you're here, why should I, why should a person continuously go through things that are hard? Just know that you are loved and you are seen by him. And that as long as you place your faith in him, he will never fail you. So lately, I've been going through more and more challenges. And like since college, I've definitely learned a lot about what it means to follow Christ. And I'm definitely not done learning. Um, as you guys know, I recently had a child, the little one over there. 
and um, he <laughs> he challenges me every day, um, <laughs> whether it's learning to lay down my body, my time, and my energy, and sleep. So <laughs> my prayer request lately is, please pray for me. <laughs> pray that um, that Matthew and I can be good examples of who Christ is, that we can show our little one, Silas, that things are much more important than the extraneous things um, in the world here today. So thank you for listening. I'm happy to answer any questions later too. But yeah. Let's pray for Daisy. This morning, Father, we heard your word clearly spoken to us where we're anchored in the wrong things of this world, whether it be our sexual orientation, the property, the things of this world has to offer. We know that that is not what you designed us to do. And now we hear it again from Daisy as she's gone through that same journey, learning that you love her in a way that's designed for something bigger, something better, something eternal, making her more like Christ each day, taking the old man and making into a new person that is eternal value. Thank you that she and Matthew are walking this journey together. May this family uh, shape Silas in a way that uh, loves uh, him with the love of Christ. May this family depend upon you each day, knowing that you are preparing them to be with you. Thank you for making um, her and Matthew and Silas part of this family. May we trust you will bring them home as a good father, as a good shepherd will. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you.